what I uh, had in mind to talk about today. Um, I, be, I decided that I would talk today uh, uh, using the fact that uh, a Zen master, uh, Master Sun Song, uh, uh, who uh, represented a Korean lineage of Zen, died in November. And um, I was just reading a catalog, actually, that came in the mail this week from uh, one of the, I guess it's uh, Dharma Crafts catalog. And they have a commemorative page talking about him. And I'd heard that he died, but I thought that I would take his principal teaching and see if I could use it as a starting point to teach about. This is a picture of him over here in this corner. His uh, affectionate title, uh, he was called Sansanin by his, uh, by his disciples. Uh, it's using his last name, and Sunim is a kind of a, a, an affectionate honorific. Um, so how many people here know about Sun Sanim, know a lot about Sun Sanim? Did you study with him at all? Did you meet him at all? No. Okay. No. So this would be actually maybe a good moment. Every once in a while, I, uh, it occurs to me, and especially there are new folks here today, to talk a little bit about the Buddhisms in the world. Uh, I, I discover when I go places, people will, and teach, not at Spirit Rock, people will raise their hand and they'll say, what do Buddhists believe about, or what does Buddhism say about, and it's not a question that's ever straightforwardly answerable because Buddhists believe everything. And there are many Buddhist Buddhisms. So and the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. So that <laughs> and what we mostly teach here are the teachings of the Buddha. And Buddhism are, uh, Buddhisms are all the lineages of practice and uh, cosmology and um, teachings and rituals that grew up around the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, who came to be known as the Buddha, the person who woke up, the enlightened person. So as, as, as the, the, Buddhism, the Buddhism that we teach here came from the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama from the time 2,500 years ago in India where he taught. Those teachings remained the principal teaching throughout Southeast Asia. One of the things that I find tremendously inspiring in the, in the compendium of uh, Theravada Buddhism, which is the Buddhism that represents that teaching of that particular teacher, is a teaching uh, given to monks and nuns, I suppose, but it really was addressed to monks. Go forth, O monks, and speak the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. I find that so echoing down over the ages and so giving me permission to speak the Dharma in the idiom that we find ourselves here in the 21st century. I find it gives me permission to speak it as the person that I am, to invite people of a variety of religious affiliations to come here and study, teach the Dharma in the idiom of the people, teach it as uh, ecumenical uh, Westerners of the 21st century. How many people here would say about themselves that they are Buddhists? How many people would say about themselves that they are something else? 
how many people would say about themselves that they are Buddhists and something else? <laughs> they, they, well, and something else. I mean, I mean, because how we, the, one of the reasons I'm interested, I want to come back and talk about in Time magazine this week. It has one of those pie-shaped things about people identify as a Republican or a Democrat or an Evangelical or a not an Evangelical or this or that. And I thought it's so hard to identify yourself as an X or a Y, you know. I am at this moment having these ideas, but does, does that make me a so-and-so? And if it makes me a so-and-so, am I limited by that decision? You know, I want to call myself anything. This is actually very much in the, in the tradition of Sansanim, who wouldn't have liked to be, uh, whose principal teaching that will pass down through, I think, the ages, is only keep, don't know mind. That was what he said, keep, don't know mind. And people would ask him something, he'd say, don't know. You know, and I mean, he, I mean, clearly, if it was informational, he uh, he knew what his name was, etc. But what do you think about this or that? Don't know. Only keep, don't know mind. The teaching of keep, don't know mind, by the way, is the teaching that that suggests that if you make an opinion, you miss seeing more things than that. That every opinion keeps your mind a little bit stuck, and it makes it impossible for you to maybe have a new idea. So just to tell you the lineage of Buddhism so we can get up to Sansanim, here came the Buddha who said, see things in a new way. Well, let's do, the, let's do the geography first. He said, see things in a new way. He sent out monks, said, teach the Holy Dharma and the idiom of the people. I presume that he meant speak Gujarati or Hindi or Urdu or wherever they're going to be in India. I don't know that he knew about places past India. But in any event, the Dharma that he taught, Dharma meaning truth or way of understanding things, the Dharma that he taught spread out through India and got carried mostly by the trade routes, um, both, uh, well, mostly east, and uh, found itself in uh, China and in Korea and uh, uh, eventually in, in Japan. I actually like to think of it, I, I have a kind of a, um, a visual image of the Dharma sort of floating, uh, floating eastward through Asia uh, towards, uh, uh, towards Japan and then floating over the ocean and coming to the United States some, um, uh, a thousand years later. But uh, actually it spread westward as well. So, but the principle spreading spread over Asia. And it remained pretty much in the way that the Buddha articulated it in the countries of Southeast Asia, in uh, Thailand and Vietnam and Burma and Laos and Cambodia and Sri Lanka. And some historians think, and I, you know, I'm not enough an historian to know about this, that those countries didn't change very much from, since, uh, over the next millennia, that they remained largely agrarian cultures uh, that uh, they didn't become uh, modern at the so to speak modern in the same pace as the more northern countries do. I don't know if that's why, but they remain pretty much in the uh, lineage of the Theravada teachings. As the teachings spread into Tibet and China and Korea and uh, Japan, especially in those four places. They developed a whole um, uh, different flavor to them, so that the teachings of the Buddha 
are always the teachings of the Buddha. There are central teachings uh, about attachment and about freedom, about liberation, about seeing clearly, about non-self that remain the principal teachings of all of the lineages of, Buddhas, uh, of Buddhism in the world. But they have different flavors in each of those countries. And the way that it's been most easy for me to visualize that is here came a great philosophical understanding, a great technology for how to see things and understand in a new way that got taken up with enthusiasm into these other countries with other cultures and uh, emerged as the central doctrine in, uh, in the middle of a culture that was a new culture. So that Tibetan Buddhism looks very Tibetan. It looks different. It has Tibetan rituals. It has uh, even a different cosmology built up around it to fill in the, uh, to hold it, and that, because it has a whole religious structure before the arrival of the Dharma. And the same is true in Korea and in China, where there was a different religious substrate happening before the Dharma arrived. So that Chinese Buddhism has its own particular flavor. And Buddhism arrived in Japan, the latest of all of those, and it arrived in the more or less the same uh, era as the samurai culture in, in Japan. It was very much taken up as part of samurai training, you know, really focus the attention and train the mind. And Zen has always seemed to me to have a much more um, firm and no-nonsense uh, attitude about it. It's uh, 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 I, I say this with great respect that my, my friends who are Zen teachers and I, we joke about the difference <laughs> of uh, how it looks to walk into a Zendo, how it looks to go to Zen Center, for instance. If you go to Green Gulch, or you go to Zen Center in the city, or you walk into our meditation hall, perfectly beautiful meditation hall, looks splendid before the retreatants arrive. All the, all the mats are neat in the room. The, the people who fix up the mats, they put all the mats beautifully lined up, wonderfully. The Zafu right in the middle of it. The room looks wonderful, splendid. And then people come in, and it completely looks like a rummage sale in a church basement the next day. People bring sweaters and blankets and sitting artifacts and thrones sometimes it looks to sit on. You know? And it's fine because we don't actually put a great emphasis on the form of the practice. But I tell you, when I go into a zendo, it picks up my heart. It's so neat. They're nice. And, and you know, there, there, there's a reason. It's not that Zen people are more obsessive than we are. It's that the thinking is that if you fix up the sitting venue in a, in a um, um, firm way, and if you sit in a firm way, then your mind will wake up. And they might be right. And maybe if we tidied ourselves up, we would make more progress with the inside. I don't know. But we have just to come along in this particular way. It'd be fun to have a field trip sometime in the middle of a retreat. I could show you how it looks up there. We are very comfortable. We are comfortable. People lean against the wall. I mean, it's, including myself over, uh, over the course of time. But anyway, everybody's culture took on a different, uh, took on a different feel. Sometimes it's interesting to me why Americans who chose a Buddhist lineage to practice in 
choose one or the other. It'd be fun to sometimes somebody could do a Rorschach and or some sort of personality a Myers Briggs and see if we choose this or that or the other, and that certain kinds of people gravitate towards the Zen. And then the Tibetans, they're so much more devotional than we are. And they have mo many more bells and gongs and incense and things. And uh, that uh, I, I think at one point we decided that there were more uh, people with a background in high church, Anglican, Roman Catholic, who were Tibetans, because they liked all the bells and the gongs. And <laughs> that we had, we had the people who didn't have that as a background. That might or might not be true, but because they like the bowing and all that. And people are here because they don't like the bowing. And somebody called me yesterday because they were looking for a sitting group that they could practice in that didn't do anything. And I said, well, we pretty well don't do anything. <laughs> I said, no, the, the thing is we have all the stuff around. It's not possible to notice that this isn't a Buddhist place, but we don't do anything about it. It's just there. So I don't know if that's too much. Uh, but that's not true. It's, it's definitely not true that in Asia, um, in, in Theravada monasteries, they do do things. They go in and they light incense and they bow and, and you know, they wear robes. They have very strict rules if they're monastics. But we have somehow made an amalgam. Who knows? Anyway, so that's the history, that more or less the geographical history. And then, of course, it spread to Europe and it spread to the United States. And, um, Buddhism's about 100 years old. The first Buddhist delegate to the World Conference of Religions in Chicago was in 1898 in Chicago. Uh, and, uh, 1893. 1893, Francis tells me. Thank you. Thank you. Do you know who it was, Francis? No. No. So it's, it's 110 years. Okay. Part of the way that Buddhism made Dharma made the leap over to the United States is Dharma teachers began to come. Uh, Thomas Merton studied <coughs> with uh, philosophers at uh, uh, Columbia. DT to Suzuki was what he either studied Suzuki or Suzuki was teaching. I don't remember. Uh, he, but Thomas Merton, who was, I think, one of, if not the most influential Catholic thinker and writer in the 20th century in this country, one of them, was very interested in Buddhism and very interested in the dialogue between Catholicism, Christianity, and Buddhism. Um, died uh, at a conference in Asia on the future of monasticism and visited a lot of uh, Tibetan teachers on that trip. Um, but as teachers started to come 30 years ago, 40 years ago, some of them brought by students who had gone to Asia and studied with them, others with invitations, others because they thought it was might be a good place to come and teach. Sansanim came from Korea, and I don't remember why he came at that point. He'd been a teacher there. But I know that people didn't bring him because the story about him is he moved to Providence, Long Island, Rhode Island, and got and got a job in a laundromat. You know the laundromat story? Got a job in a laundromat as a laundromat attendant, uh, cha making change for people and helping them with the machines. 
And uh, so he was in the laundromat all day. And Brown University is in Providence. And people, students came to do their laundry and talk to him and caught on to the fact that he knew something. And he became their teacher. And then they got a house in Providence and installed him in the house and moved in and became students of his. Two of his more famous students, well, I, don't remember, I, don't, I don't remember what his name was when he was a student, um, because he took on a, a Zen practice name when he was a student uh, with Sansanim, and went on to write some books about the teachings of Sansanim, and then went on to write other books, and now goes by his regular name, which is Stephen Mitchell. Which, who was one of the students of Sansanim. The other one um, is Musang, uh, whose uh, original name I don't know because he continues his name, Musang, who is the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Uh, so two people who are friends of mine were students of uh, <coughs> Sansanim. And maybe one more, one more, one more, st you spell it S. E-U-N-G, S-E-U-N-G, his last name is S-A-H-N, he was born in 1927, died in 2004 at the age of 77. He said, we remember him as a wise, great-hearted man with a robust, ready laugh who barreled through the world with the energy of a freight train, <laughs> tossing seeds of the Dharma wherever he found fertile ground. He was the uh, first Korean Zen master to live and teach in the West. He founded the Kwan Un Zen School, an international organization of more than 100 Zen centers worldwide, and he was the 78th patriarch in his line of transmission. <coughs> so the, I want to just tell you one more Sansanim story. I met him once in Berkeley. I met him uh, 15 years ago. and. Uh, Mostly what he got from him, because he spoke very little English, was his vibe, which was tremendously energetic. In some famous meeting, you pr many of you will know this story, in some famous meeting in Boston, the students of Sansanim and the students of uh, Kala Rinpoche brought their two teachers together to have a discussion. Kala Rinpoche was a Tibetan teacher who died probably 15 years ago. He was Lama Paldin's teacher. Kala Rinpoche died in his mid-90s. He was uh, a tall and craggy and imposing <coughs> man. He uh, did a uh, bo um, bodhisattva vows at the Franklin Street Church once that I was present at years ago. Amazing regal presence. Sansanim was a little man. And so here came uh, uh, Kala Rinpoche in his purple and gold uh, robes. Here came Sansanim in his gray Zen robes. And the students of Sansanim and the students of Kala bring them together. And they meet to have a debate. Do you know this story? Mm -hmm. Sansanim reaches into the sleeve of his jacket uh, and takes out an orange. And he puts it out like this, and he says to Kala Rinpoche, what is this? So they're talking through interpreters, because they don't even speak English. So Kala, 
and but he doesn't answer. And Sansanim says, "What is this?" And Kalil again goes with his interpreters, who are clearly saying to him, "He wants you to say what is this." And Sansanim says again, "What is this?" Kalil, and then the interpreter says, "Rinpoche wants to know." Don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make sure I had done that right. <laughs> Rinpoche wants to know that they have oranges in Korea. So on a certain level, I'm glad you laughed. You know, what is this? It's an orange. Sansanim is asking a Zen question. What is this deeply? You know, it's very Zen. That's probably another reason why I didn't do Zen, because they have all that. You have to have meetings with Zen teachers where they ask you things like, what is this? And it's an orange. And you know that that's the wrong answer. I so don't like to have the wrong answer. That I could never go into one of those little meetings where they say something like, they give you a koan, what is the hand, or the sound of one hand clapping, you don't know, and then they do ding dong, and you have to get up and go out and feel humiliated. And I have so much invested in knowing the right answer, I could never do that. I have, I have friends who are koan teachers, but they do humiliation better than I do. I don't do it well. But that's the famous story of, of color and something. But, the, the whole question of what is this is not because Zen masters are foolish or because it doesn't have any sense. It's can you see deeply into this is the question. Can you see deeply? Probably if I wanted to make a name for what I wanted to teach today, it would be can you see deeply? I've been really trying to teach in the last several weeks as I listen to myself about what are we doing here? When we sat today, and I said, I'm going to give you the instructions for today in a different way. I gave the instructions in the beginning in the normal way. Sit down, pay attention to your body. I gave the instructions as following the first three of the four foundations of mindfulness. Pay attention to your body. What is happening? Notice, is this happening, this happening, this happening, this happening? Just to know, okay, breath is coming in, going out. A sensation here, sensation there, vibrations here, vibrations there, pounding here, pounding there, physically, what's happening? What's happening uh, as well, you know, what, what, what's happening with sounds? What's happening with thoughts? What's, in your, what, what's the nature of what's in the mind? Here a thought, there a thought, here a thought, there a thought. Now a feeling, this I like, this I don't like, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. First three of the four foundations of mindfulness say pay attention to what's happening. The fourth foundation of mindfulness that we don't talk about so much and give instructions, but I really think is the quintessential instruction, it's really the overriding instruction, is what's true about what's happening. Because when you think about it, what does it matter if it's a breath in or a breath out, or a thought about tomorrow or a thought about yesterday? I mean, it matters what happens to the thoughts. It matters that you have one little thought and then it mushrooms up, takes up the whole mind. Or You have one little thought and uh, you're in the best mood and you have one little thought, <coughs> bad mood. Doesn't that happen a lot? Uh, I was driving someplace yesterday. Happens all the time. I'm driving along in the best possible mood and uh, this thought comes, that thought comes, this thought comes, that thought comes. All of a sudden comes a thought. It's kind of like a poison thought, you know? It's, it, it just it enters the mind in the same way every other thought. It just comes in. But trailing all these seeds 
of setting off an explosion in the mind, you know, the mind that was before that thought arose, having a good time, and then you think that thought, that thought arises, you don't think it, it just arises. And it, it sprays out all these seeds of, all right, start to fret now. And, you can, and, it, and it's really fun, I'm driving along. And I'm way into a conversation of no import at all. I can't, it's one of these world situation things that can't make a difference. But I could ride along and be in a fume about it and self-righteous if I don't catch myself about it. And thereby pollute the whole trip, you know, come home in a bad mood. You think to yourself, so am I not supposed to listen to world events? Am I not supposed to know what's going on? Now, how, what's the line between knowing what's going on, being effective in the world? Okay, go home. If I want to, I can call up my congressperson. If I want to, I can send money to an organization. My question is, do I, how much of my airtime do I have to fill up with those kinds of thoughts to mobilize me to make a difference in the world? Without, and can I do it without polluting my own mind with uh, negativity and meanness? That's actually one of the central things that I think about. Let's go back to the orange, though, because it's worth staying a little bit more on the orange. This morning, when I gave the instructions, you remember I said, okay, just do that for a while. And then I said, okay, here's another instruction. Notice the uh, ephemeral nature of everything. I didn't say that. I said, notice that everything arises and passes away. Did you do that? Did it change what you were doing? Did you not do it? You did it. Yeah. Was it interesting? Ready, set, go. Tell the person next to you or two people next to you what happened to you when you did that. This is a little workshop. Three-minute workshop. Five-minute workshop. Tell the two people next to you or one person. Just turn to the person next to you. Doesn't matter. Find a partner or two. Yeah, turn around. There you go. Do you have a partner? Yeah. 
Does everybody who has a part want to have a have a partner who wants a partner? Nobody got left out, did they? Are you all finished talking that over? All right. Well, we have one more thing to do. don't don't forget who your partners were because one more thing to talk about. What did you learn? You don't have to recapitulate the whole way, but what was the best thing that came out of your little discussion, Joey? Yeah. So that what you learned is that people have the same experience. Mm -hmm. and then the, the beginning and the end, and you don't have to get all caught up in it <coughs> somehow. So Betsy, we're going to go on to other people, but let me tell you that that awareness, ah, we both realize the same, is actually, it's actually a central piece of awareness that there are, for each of us, the, the Buddha would have said, our idiosyncratic truths. There are things that are true about our life and my story that might not be the same as your story, but that there are things that are universally true, that, that it's universally true that things arise and pass away. So that when we're talking about what's the truth, you can't have a, there isn't a different Buddhist truth than a Jewish truth than a Christian truth than a non-religious truth, and the Buddha would have said that truth is truth. Um, okay, so what else? Yeah. Just stretching. Okay. There you go, Barbara. I had a very un-Buddhist thought of envy. Uh, Susan had such a wonderful image. I, was, I started off by saying, you know, I just, just didn't do it. I was sleepy, and I was trying to <laughs> And she had had such a marvelous experience, and I was thinking, you know, this is another lesson for me of wanting to look at it more, to or to get myself to meditate more regularly. See, this is a great lesson that you hear that whole thing about. My partner said she had this marvelous image. I myself had just shared that I was sleepy and I missed the whole thing and didn't do it. And and also, but sharing that the next thought that comes up is, I look, I'm envious, you know. We all are, you know. I am actually convinced that envy in... I decided that envy is a bad word, you know. Envy is an envy. It's like, a, it's like one of those sins that you don't want to have. If I change it to, from envy to yearning, then I don't feel so sinful about it. I say, oh, when I heard what happened to so-and-so, I yearned to have the same sort of experience. Don't you feel kinder about that person? It's better. Somebody said, you know, I had envy, uh, but I yearned. It's, oh, <laughs> it, it brings up much more compassion. I decided that the other day when I was thinking about something that I was yearning for. <laughs> but I think it's actually true, and that we are, and that the, the determination, ah, uh, I was narrow-minded. I didn't completely exult in this other person's experience. I didn't completely. I completely exalted, but I wished that I had it also. So that, I, and it was really very freeing for me to realize that I really wanted that. I didn't have it, but I, I wish I did, because otherwise it wouldn't have ended up in the resolve. Oh, I have to really meditate more. The compassionate moment. Huh? Uh, today I missed a great awareness. I was asleep. I, I, you know, maybe next time not. 
could bring up hope, it could bring up determination, it could bring up resolve, it could bring up confidence, it could bring up uh, intention, it could bring up a lot of things. Much better to think yearning than envy. What was your great awareness, Susan? <laughs> Usually when I, when I meditate, I just kind of go into this golden light space and, you know, as things come along with but this time with that thing, the, there was like a skylight that opened up from the golden light, and then there were this, the sky, the dark sky and the stars, and, the, and, and I realized just the way I could push away the thoughts that I could also open and close that skylight. Huh. Well. <laughs> so things having a beginning, that it was possible to bring things to a beginning or to an end by putting the attention here or there. <laughs> What else did you discover? (laughs) Being a child, it was like once you said that, I went, oh, there everything goes. It was just, um, it was like being a child and having everything just expand and go. Yeah. What's your name? Suzanne. Suzanne, thank you very much. What else? Cynthia. Well, um, Coming and going and not attachment, but I'm going to be leaving this wonderful, glorious, eternal spring place to go back east, and I'm very attached to being Mm -hmm. Mm here. I'm trying to tell myself, don't be attached. Yeah, yeah, but you are. So we, you know. Let's have a look at like a one-minute attachment break where we talk about what does it mean, attachment. Because uh, I think this, I think, I think, I, again, maybe this is a way of getting myself off the hook. I think that an attachment is, and I have them, is something that stands in the way irrevocably of my being content in this moment. That... I want to make an attachment. Really, it comes, it comes from the second noble truth about the cause of suffering is attachment. But the, really, the word in the second noble truth is um, tanha, and it means craving. And it means, I think, the intractable uh, need, the irreconcilable need for this moment to be different than how it is. And uh, I can't be happy unless it's different from how it is. And I think that there's a difference between saying, you know what, I love it here. It's fabulous here. The weather is beautiful. Everything, you know, the, what, all, the, all the things about it. I already miss it in advance. You know, I was, I, I was up here early this morning. I needed to meet somebody. So I walked down, and those blue whatever it is are in, do you know what they are? The bushes of forget-me-nots? The ceanothus is in bloom. It does it a very short time every year. It does it maybe for a month. It's the most spectacular color in the world. I love that. And it just does it this month. And I came out, and I was enjoying that the bushes are in such full color. And I realized I was already lamenting that they won't be here in May when I'm back. This minute they're here. But I was having a pre-lamenting moment, and and I was aware of it. You know, I was thinking, too bad they're only here one month. Now the truth is, if they were here every month, maybe I wouldn't be so blown away by them. You know that, you know, I, I asked somebody in um, 
in New England when I was there last teaching. It's driving me through all the foliage in, in October. And every time you go around a corner, it's amazing. And you get so excited. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if it looked this way all year long, whether you'd stop being excited. Whether you'd say, ah, oh, you know, it's just... And it's only that, that it's so... It, that not only do you see it, but you realize its ephemeral nature and it makes it so much more amazing. I don't know. What do you think? I thought, just for a minute, let's think of the connection between this moment and um, the last moment that we sat together. You know, we sit together every week, and on a lot of weeks, not every week, we mention out loud people that we're thinking about. Every time that I remember to do that at the end, sometimes I'm thinking about it and I don't remember to do it, let's let's do it out loud. When I remember to do it out loud, I'm always so struck by the amount of suffering that, every, that we're holding in this room. That's even only the people that spoke. Everybody, if we said it's an obligation for you to speak out, everybody would be saying, I'm thinking of so-and-so, I'm thinking of so-and-so. In, even if in your personal sphere there isn't so-and-so, I was thinking this morning on my way over, there's a box in the New York Times every day that says who died yesterday in Iraq. And I looked to see how old they were, 22, 25, two of them, three of them. What the Buddha meant for people to see, and this is my, my view anyway, what, the, what is this really is not what's happening, but if we could look with eyes that really saw what is happening, then we would see the amount of suffering in the world. Here's a room of people that got up this morning, all of us mobile, all of us able to walk in. And sometimes people come in not able to with assistance, but all of us came in today healthy enough to get here one way or another and to walk in and sit down. We are all well. We all got up out of bed knowing about a certain amount of pain in the world. We keep going. I think what the Buddha taught is the need to see so clearly that there, was, there would be no moment in life in which we would not remember the amount of pain in the world inherent in being in a life itself, in the best of lives where nothing happens untoward and no diseases intervene and balconies don't break and addictions don't happen. Eventually people get old and die and people are bereaved. I feel, while we are sitting, I wonder, I'm checking this, what happens with you. When we're saying that, when this one says, and that one says, this one says, and that one says, I feel the change in myself is I feel um, sweetened in my heart. I feel more tenderized in a certain way. Like if we were all to talk at that moment, we would talk in a lower voice. Like we just suddenly discovered that we're all living in a hospital, actually. Well, we are. We're all living in a big hospital, spreads out all over the world. And everybody has a uh, terminable, terminal illness, some of them more acute than others. Everybody would like to get through it. And I've been reading all this stuff about dying with dignity and living with dignity. 
Everybody wants to, everybody knows it's a terminal illness, a life. They, but they want to get through it with dignity and they want to have a long one, a long illness in this life. A long one with enough joy to make it worthwhile and, and enough dignity to make it supportable. And somehow we start to listen to this one and 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 this one. It not only remembers, reminds me of who else I know, but that I know that everyone in the whole world is in that condition. And the immediate thing it does is it melts animosity in my mind. If I am holding something on somebody, my gr if I had a grudge meter in my mind, or an aversion meter, or an I'm still annoyed at so-and-so because of this meter in my mind, the meter would go down during that period. I feel myself sweeter. Do you? What happens for you in that time? Susan? I, I also personally, I mean, I have a sister-in-law who's a young, and living with her there and Thursdays every young cancer, and I don't really talk about it very much, but I find every time I say it here, it just brings me to tears because there's something about that public putting it out, I think, that, that really gets to our heart, much yeah. more so than not saying it out loud. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. One thing that happened for me this morning again was I was feeling um, overwhelmed with with tears as everyone talked, but thinking I look forward to telling my friend that she was here in our presence mm -hmm. this morning yeah. because I know that that means something to her. Yeah, yeah. And I just that was this good feeling that you know we're mm -hmm. all whoever we are we're all sending healing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we Jamie. do that, I feel much more open to the suffering of others yeah. in my heart. Yeah. And I don't know that I have a grudge meter, but you use those words, and mine um, towards actually my spouse went way down. Because yeah. I must want something else in the moment. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, it's too much. The every moment so wonderful. Yeah. Where, why is there a grudge or whatever there? Or there? I think that that's, that's, well, that's one of the connections that I see so clearly, Betsy. It says, that's a line in the Dhammapada, it says, and it links it back to impermanence, which is arising and passing away. That anyone who recognizes impermanence ceases to be contentious. It may be my all-time favorite line out of all Dharma. If you realize that not only does this breath come and go, this bird call comes and goes, this morning comes and goes, Everything comes and goes, really everything comes and goes. That our days really are numbered. You know, they say that about people with, uh, you know, an acute illness, his days are numbered, her days are numbered. Everybody's, even if you have a big number. <laughs> even if you have a big number. However many, how, however big the number is, would you want to spend any part of that number sitting and seething if you had a choice? If you had a choice, because uh, he can't see, he can't, he can't be blessing and seething at the same time. He can't. I actually think that's why we do that at the end. We sit quietly, the mind settles down, we feel ourselves present. That in some way, either, uh, well, you know, today I said notice arising and passing away. Uh, 
I always remember I was teaching a retreat once somewhere years ago. I won't tell you where because it skews the story a little bit. But I was teaching a retreat of people who had never, this many years ago, and people who had no experience with meditation. And uh, my and it was a five-day retreat. And my habit then, I don't think I do it so much now, maybe I should, is um, when I gave instructions in each sitting over and over again, we'd sit, we'd walk, we'd sit, we'd walk, and I'd give instructions, and I would say, <coughs> notice, uh, notice the breath comes in, the breath goes out. Uh, notice that the breath arises and passes away. Everything arises and passes away. Everything that happens arises and passes away. And it was a time that I was perhaps saying it a little bit more than now. I, I also, you know, in a retreat, you're teaching every hour, giving the instructions again. And I thought it was a good pedagogical tool. It's called, when, uh, when talk about being with certain spiritual teachers and they do that sort of thing, it's called pointing the awareness in the direction of the truth. So people just don't sit and notice the breath in and out. Breath. I mean, we're not becoming pulmonologists. You don't have to know about the breath. I know, there's got to be some point to noticing it other than it's there. But but to notice what's true about it, what's true about it is that it arises and passes away. What's also true about it is it's a sign that we're still alive. And if you put those two together, you can see, whoa. And if you've ever been with a person who's dead as they die, you know, they breathe and they breathe and they breathe and then they don't. And then it's different from before. So... My sense is that the paying attention is in order to be able to see that not only is it true for other people, but it's true for me too. That being true for me, do I want to mortgage away one minute of it, being angry, or fretting about something, or planning a revenge, or doing a this, or doing a that? If I could in this moment bless and praise, why would I want to do something else with it? But I don't always get, I don't always have that awareness. I think we come together in order to keep that awareness fresh in the mind. Wait, wait, wait. So it was the end of something, of some explanation that I was just then doing. Wait, wait, wait. Huh? Oh, the retreat. So I'm giving these instructions. And I think it's good pedagogy to keep saying. Because otherwise people would just sit and be with the breath. And I want them to see that everything that arises passes away. So I keep on saying that. One afternoon on the third or the fourth day of the retreat, we're sitting in the afternoon, and I say, okay, bring your attention. Feel on your bottom, on your back, feel your body, da da. Feel the breath come and go. Notice that the breath comes and goes. Notice that the thoughts come and go. Everything that arises passes away. And one of the people in the group, in an anguished voice, said, Why do you keep saying that? I, I can't stand that you keep saying that. So maybe I was a little bit too much grinding it in, but I said, you know, I keep saying it because it's true, you know. And maybe it was a little bit too, I, you know, I don't think I was being lugubrious about it. I mean, that's the point. That's the point. Uh, presumably, the very last thing that the Buddha said when he died, the very last thing that he said, presumably in the sutras, before he died was, strive on with diligence. The sentence before that was transient are all conditioned things, which means everything that arises passes away. That that particular thing is what you're supposed to see. It's not that this is an orange or it's a sweetness or it's a source of nutrient. It's that it's here now, but it 
won't be. If you look at it long enough, it'll rot. Or uh, if you eat it, it will have disappeared in you, and it'll be simple. It'll be in another form that nothing continues in its form forever. And lives arise and pass away. It's been so much in the news these last few weeks about the sanctity of life and the importance of life. Uh, I think to myself about how does that work that it fought, when it falls in my mind, we could do the whole politics about that, but that in my mind, when I remember I only have now to do this moment, I don't get to do it again. I think about it in terms of, uh, oh, if I had known this uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, I could have avoided so many fruitless domestic discussions <laughs> about you hurt my feelings when, or, you know. It, what does it matter? You hurt my feelings. Okay, but that finished. You probably did it inadvertently. See, the frame I have now is my feelings are hurt. Does this person really love me? Yes, they do. Just spoke stupidly. Okay, so forget about it. Forward. That's a much faster way to deal with it than the than the endless discussions about when you said I felt and then you said back and you felt. Forget. I have no truck with that anymore. Life is short. It's way shorter than I imagined, and and the end of it comes way too soon. So, really, I think that. The, the whole of, um, maybe to come back to Sansanim, just to end it in a Sansanim kind of a way. Um, the one connection between contention in the mind and Sansanim's only keep, don't know mind has to do with the having of opinions. One of the ways in which my mind gets caught in contention, I'm driving yesterday and I hear some news about who knows about this or some other piece of news, which sets up the we and the they. If only those people who have the wrong idea about how things should be done weren't doing things. Whatever it was, I don't remember which piece of the news it was, that people who are wrong are doing something that I, who am right, think is right. But in the, in the, but in the middle, my mind is caught in not liking and making them the enemy. And I think to myself, What if I think about Sansanim? I was thinking about Sansanim and thinking about, I don't know. You know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I don't know. What in the long run will be the right thing? I think I know what would be the kind and compassionate thing to do in this moment. But I don't, this moment is unfolding the way this moment is unfolding because of the karma of this moment. I don't know what the sequelae of this moment is. You know, I had a moment this morning. This is, again, you know, I don't have to hide my views. You know what my views are anyway. There's a whole question about should Dharma teachers tell their views. This is one of the things that it does, people are discussing now. It's a topic. It's an important topic. Should you tell your political views? Um, I don't know how you can not. I think you can't electioneer. And, and I think it's my business to be saying I could be wrong and... Uh, the Dharma does not belong to the Democrats. I mean, I'm really clear about that. That I, you know, that first of all, I could be wrong, and second of all, it's a nonpartisan Dharma, and third of all, uh, I don't understand, you know, the complexities of politics. But there's a way in which this is again 
I have to see if I have enough time to get into this and out of it without leaving myself in trouble. <laughs> I uh, read a, read one of these uh, pie polls. You know, everybody's <laughs> taking a poll of who feels this and that and who has this opinion and that opinion. Says, how many people feel that uh, Congress acted incorrectly by usurping these powers and uh, rushing back to pass that injunction or bill or whatever? And uh, so 70% of people said, I think they did the wrong thing. Said, and then they took another poll and they said, how many people, if your congressperson had voted that way, uh, would that cause you to vote in a different way the next time? And a tremendous number of people. I said, yes, would. So I thought, oh, good. So the, of course, then I thought to myself, you see, again, I'm again taking sides, and I'm having a, I'm, I'm using people's personal pain to to potentiate my personal political stories of what's right and wrong, and I don't know, you know, that I would be very well served to think a little bit more Sansanim. I don't know, what what I don't know about, as I know what I think in this moment. But I do know that this moment is the result of the karma of everything that's ever happened and everyone that's ever done anything. The karma of the future will depend on what we do now and everybody else does now. The only possible good effect I can have in the world is one that comes out of me uh, free of greed, hatred, and delusion. The only possible thing I can do that's helpful in the world is to be sure that I don't close my mind with an opinion and keep it open. I don't know. I don't know. I do know for sure that um, I feel better, I feel happier, I feel more content when I act out of a place of kindness and not out of a place of uh, imperative that comes from greed or hatred or delusion. I come out of a place of clarity. I make a difference. I make it. I think I make a difference here, but I'm sure I make a difference here. And here is the only place that I'm actually in charge of. So it ends me up saying I have no job other than making sure that my own heart stays kind. That that's the whole of the job. Now it's a very important thing that when Susan said talking out loud makes it more real. It's an extremely important thing for me that you come. You know, I think to myself sometimes. Sometimes people think, oh, gratitude to the teacher. I have to have a moment of gratitude to you because if you didn't come, I couldn't do this. So <laughs> and I need you here so that I can do public confession every week and hear what I think. It keeps me well-behaved, honestly. I mean, I, I, I honestly, it keeps me well-behaved when I'm not here, too, because how could I possibly? The worst thing, by the way, I don't know if it's the worst, but it's a really bad thing to think about, to to indulge in what I know is unskillful thinking and planning and plotting and catch myself in doing it and remember that I am I'm convinced that that's not the way and it's not the way that I teach. If I can't live in that way, uh, when I feel like a spiritual fraud, it's the worst. So it keeps me from being a spiritual fraud in my life. So thank you very much. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.